0: Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Mike and Davina. And today my guest is Chris Baseford. If you're not familiar with Chris, Chris is a Canadian-born producer, engineer, and mixer who's worked with some of the biggest names in the industry. He's worked with bands like Nickelback, Shinedown, Rob Zombie, Motley Crue, Avril Lavigne, and so many others. And actually, before we start recording this episode, we were just chatting, and it turns out that we actually grew up like basically next door to each other. Like our, our neighborhoods were so close, and yeah, he was only a couple years older than me, but uh we and we even have some common friends too. So small world, but it was great to get the chance to talk with Chris and Chris has just such incredible mixes. If you've ever listened to any of the Nickelback mixes or even the Avril Lavigne stuff or the Rob Zobby stuff, like these mixes just sound so polished and so big and so clear. And so in this interview, we get into that and we talk about Chris's approaches for how to make mixes sound wide, how to get guitar tone, how to make your drum slam and hit real hard and have that clarity without sounding muddy. So I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Chris does an amazing job of detailing his process, and I think there's a lot of great lessons to learn from this episode. So let's not waste any time. Let's just jump right into the interview with Chris Baseford. Chris Baysford, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And uh, we were just chatting before off air, and it turns out that we're like basically neighbors growing up. So <laughs> like a small world. <laughs>
1: Pretty much, yeah. We've definitely uh, we've definitely seen each other walking down the street, and have had just had no idea for yeah, sure. Yeah,
0: it's amazing. Well, thanks again for taking the time to do this. For people who might not know your story, how how did you get into audio, and how did you get to ultimately where you are now?
1: Well, if we go back kind of to the beginning, beginning, I've been kind of um, uh, into music quote unquote, uh, since I was a little kid, my mom and my dad listened to a lot of, you know, pop and rock. And, um, you know, there's lots of pictures of me as a toddler playing toy guitars and stuff like that. And I've always been, um, very captivated by music and listening to music and i you know even when i was really young i you know had a little care bears record player that i used to play my dad's you know vinyl on and stuff like that so i kind of naturally as i got a little older wanted to play instruments my dad and my both my mom and my dad played instruments in like you know marching bands and school bands and stuff like that but uh so i I kind of started getting interested in the guitar when i was a kid took some lessons and kind of was like yeah i don't really like this and i was more Kind of got more into sports, and then when I became a teenager, I kind of I kind of went back and I started getting into guitar again. This time, like you know, electric guitar and you know, distorted amps and stuff like that. And um, so, putting together bands and you know, uh, you know, later elementary and early high school, played in some rock bands. And um, you know, as we were talking about off air, I was the guy who was, was just like wanted to make everything. You know sound good and uh you know instead of going out and wanting to play shows all the time <clears throat> i wanted to go make demos all the time and then wanted to rent and i, I would rent gear and you know little four trackers eight track recorders and and some mics and we would just make demos all the time and um that led me to um not really realizing that that was a, that was like a viable career, uh, but it it led me to like wanting to you know wanting to experiment with sound more. So like even with guitars, like I would I would go and try out guitar amps, and it was you know for me that was almost more fun than like learning how to play a song. It was like just just you know fucking with guitar pedals and amps and that kind of stuff. And, um, one summer, I I think I've told this story before, but one summer I was at a friend of mine's house and his older brother had like just awesome, you know, you know, rock records and, and videos and, you know, just an awesome collection of stuff from cool bands. And, um. We were, uh, we were sifting through his collection of stuff, and I found this this um, VHS video of uh, Metallica a year and a half in the life of, which is the documentary of them making the Black Album. And the first half of it, it was two, two, uh, um, two video cassettes, and the first half of it was them in the studio, and the second half of it was when they went and toured. And we watched the first half, and about 30 minutes in, like, the other three guys that we were hanging out with were like, ah, fuck, this is boring. And I was just glued. I'm like, holy shit. Like I, this is, this is like Disneyland for me. Like I'm getting to watch like one of my favorite bands, like make one of my favorite records. I didn't even know this thing existed. Right. And I, I watched, I mean, I watched it, you know, from beginning to end, probably like three times that day while my friends went out and did something else. I'm like, no, no, I'm good. I'm going to want to watch this again. And, um, that was Bob Rock and Randy Staub who made that record, and I was kind of like, like, holy shit! Like that, that's that you know, yeah, Metallica is the band, but like those are the guys who are like doing the stuff that I like to do with my band. And I also started paying attention to to album credits a little bit more, and and I kept on saying seeing the same names on my favorite records. And then it started making me wonder, I'm like, okay, what are the who are these guys? Like, you know, I kept on seeing Bob Rock and Bruce Fairburn and Mut Lang and you know Randy Staub and Mike Fraser and um, you know Mike Shipley, and I'm like, these guys like are the common thread on my favorite albums. So that got me very intrigued as to like, well, what does a producer and what does an engineer do? And then when I saw that Metallica movie, and I was like, oh, that's what they do. Holy shit. And, uh, from, I was probably 15 when I saw that. And at that point I'm like, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Like, that's what I want to do. And so everything from there on out was like, okay, I just want to make, I want to make records and be in the studio for the rest of my life. So, yeah. So that kind of got me into it. I went to a recording school. Um, it was like an accelerated year program, um, graduated from that scared shitless because I'm like, I don't know anything. I didn't learn anything like feeling like I didn't learn anything. And, um, I was able to kind of weasel my way into, um, kind of like an informal internship at Sony music in Toronto and, um, had the just amazing opportunity to, to work with, with the in-house, um, engineers and producers there. And, um, the, uh, the, the head engineer, his name was Lenny DeRose, um, just one of my early mentors. He, um, he was friends with uh, a, a guy in LA named Scott Humphrey, another Canadian who had done a bunch of records with Rob Zombie and Motley Crue. And, um, and Lenny had worked with him in the past. And one day I was at Sony cleaning up one of the rooms or getting one of the rooms ready. And Lenny came in and was like, hey, Uh, I talked to Scott, he needs an engineer in, uh, and I was a fan of Scott's work already. So like, you know, Lenny had always kind of, you know, joked, he's like, oh, well, one day maybe you go down to LA and, you know, hang out with Scott or Scott's up here. We'll, you know, uh, we'll get together or whatever. So he's like, he's like, Scott, Scott needs a guy in LA, um. And I think it was like a, probably a Tuesday or a Wednesday when this happened. And he's like, he needs you there by Friday.
0: (laughs) Classic story.
1: Yeah, totally. And I'm like, uh, okay. Um, he's like, yeah, here's his number, call him, um, you know, book a flight and, and go. And, and at first I was kind of like, like, is this Sony business? Like, is he, is he like, oh, Scott needs a guy. He's working on a Sony record. Like I, it, it was very kind of like, I'm like, I have no idea what this means. Um, and then when i when i spoke to scott it was a little more like yeah i've you know he's got he's got his own studio and he's like i've had an engineer for the last like six seven years and he's going on to do another project i need a guy to to come and record a a band that i'm working with um get get down here as fast as you can and there was another time where i was like scared shitless because you know i had been like assistant for so long and i was you know recording you know you know, if artists were coming in and they wanted to do some writing or something like that, like I was running sessions, but I wasn't a quote unquote engineer. And now I'm going down to L.A. to work with like, like a really well-known like producer who I'm a fan of making the music that I wanted to make. That was the other thing at the time. Heavy music. Um, I mean, rock was on the charts and, and it was popular, but a lot of the stuff I'd done at Sony was not like heavy rock. And that's what Scott did. So I was like, holy shit, I get to do the music that I love to do. Um, so I got on a plane. I went down there, didn't know when or if I was coming back. Everybody at Sony was like, you're not coming back. You're not coming back. I'm like, oh, no, I'll see you guys in a month or two when I'm done this record. And they're like, you're not coming back. And I I, I didn't come back. So yeah, that was, that was, that was 19 years ago i think last month yeah so it was 19 years ago i worked with scott for about five or six years and um got to work with some of my favorite artists and just meet a just a bunch of people and learn a lot and work on like all the gear i i always read about and wanted to like just you know be um knee deep and and uh, great experience and then you know um Scott kind of, you know, phased out of the music business a little bit. He had some other projects going on outside of making records. And um, so then I kind of branched off and just, just kept working and tried to stay busy and keep learning and keep doing great stuff. And here we are. I've somehow, I've somehow managed to stick around.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I mean, it says something about your work ethic back then that – you were able to, A, get a job with Sony to begin with, because there's not many of those opportunities available, especially these days, and to be able to stick through it and then to all of a sudden just get this gig where, you know, it's like, hey, fly down to LA and, like, you're going to stay here forever kind of thing. Like, obviously, you were you were prepared for it. So, you know, that says, or maybe you weren't prepared mentally for it, but obviously, like, your your work ethic was prepared enough to keep you there, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's definitely early on, it, there's a saying you don't know what you don't know and I think there's there's definitely um there's definitely a benefit if you think if that is the way that your brain works my problem was I knew what I didn't know and I was like holy shit I don't know I don't know I don't know and but but I was willing to do whatever I had to do to learn and um I was a quick learner and I think ultimately, my like panic or anxiety about not knowing what to do. I knew more than I th- than I thought I did. I knew more, and I and I I was more experienced than I gave myself credit for. But I think that also worked well for me because I think I see I see now at least a lot of a lot of young kids thinking they know everything, and that's dangerous. Um, I think it's better to be scared and anxious that you don't know enough. And then it is to go in thinking, you know, everything. And, and I, I guarantee you the biggest and most successful engineers and producers in the world will admit that they don't know everything. So a kid coming out of recording school shouldn't think he knows everything. Um, so it actually probably worked very well for me because it also, um, it made me very open-minded. It made me very kind of, um, you know, pliable to the situation as well, because I wasn't so locked in on, oh, this is the way I do it, or this is the thing I, that I do. Like when I went d- down to Scott's, he had a console that I'd never even seen before, and I had to learn the thing in a day. And it was like not a console that you learn in a day, it was a Euphonic CS3000, which is like the most backward. It's a great console, but it's the most backwards thing. If you'd learn a traditional large format console and then you sit down at a CS 3000, even a veteran engineer is going to be like, how do you use this thing? And, um, so yeah, you know, work ethic definitely played a lot into it. I think, um, you know, I, I, I had a lot of, I got lucky. I, I, you know, had a lot of opportunities just work out well. Um, but I always tell people, you know, getting an opportunity is one thing and taking advantage of that opportunity and, and seizing the moment is something else entirely. And um, I was, like I said, I was lucky to get the opportunities, but, you know, I, I tried to make the most of them when they when they did arrive.
0: For sure. Well, what's that, what's that saying? Luck is when preparation and opportunity collide or something like that?
1: Yep, absolutely. You know,
0: so, yeah, you obviously your work ethic was there and uh, – and your willingness to learn was also there too. So that that was definitely working in your favor. Cause you're right, there are so many people that come out of these recording schools and have this attitude of like, oh, I know everything. I went to school for it. And it's totally different when you're in the actual real thick of it all, you know? I, I, I've told the story of my podcast before, but I remember like, I, I went to an audio college as well. And I remember my first day at a studio after I graduated, like the head engineer were chatting and he's like, you know, oh, you went to an audio college? Cool well, forget everything you learn because we do things differently here, right? <laughs> right? And it was like, okay. And like that day I saw him like distorting preamps and stuff like that. And I was like, oh yeah, we were told to never do this, you know? <laughs> like, And it was just such an eye-opening experience. So to, for you to also go in with that same attitude of like, okay, I'm here to learn, like let's just make this happen obviously you've, you've had a successful career as a result of doing that kind of thing right
1: yeah and i still have you know i mean there's still sessions that i go into and i'm like okay this is going to be something completely different or we're, we're taking a different approach and we're going to have to learn something different or like i I, st- I still i'm still as hungry to learn now as i was back then you know mm-hmm. um you know, I, I, I love you know, like podcasts like yourselves. I like, I love listening to podcasts, I love listening to other engineers. Um, you know, I've been lucky to be able to meet some of the like my heroes that have made some of my favorite records, and I love talking to them and you know, picking their brain on stuff and just having conversations about this, you know, this silly thing making records that we all love to do, and um. It's amazing because there's no one way to do anything, For sure. and you know there's probably fifty, probably you know, infinite ways to do the same thing. And especially now with all the tool set that we have, so hearing how different people use different things um, and being able to see the benefit in different workflows and different tool sets, um, like you're you, you really do never stop learning if you're open minded, and that's you know that's the attitude that you have about it, and. We all want to get. We all want to continue getting better. I don't know one guy who's like, "Yeah, I'm good. I don't need to make. I don't. I don't need to get any better."
0: Absolutely. Actually, <laughs> I do know.
1: I do know a few people who think that, but <laughs> uh, b- believe it or not, I do know a few people who probably think that, but. Uh,
0: I I would hope that at that point they've already had their legacy and you know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the
1: the the people in my mind have had a uh, have had a have had a, an amazing run. So yeah, maybe maybe if I ever get to that point, I'll be like, no, I'm good, but, but I'm not there yet.
0: <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> well, you had mentioned that um, you kind of when you really started getting into music, it was like when you started playing guitar and that was kind of like when you started getting into like realizing like, Hey, there's like rock music out there. This can be fun. Um, And then you mentioned that you, you got this job at Sony where you weren't really working on rock music as much, but then this new opportunity came up and it was like, Hey, now I get my chance. So I'm curious to know, like how do you feel your ability to play guitar has impacted the work that you do now?
1: Hmm. Interesting. I mean, again, it's, it's, I'm a, I'm a little naive to the, to the benefit of it. And it's funny when people ask me, you know, they're like, oh, do you, are you, do you, do you play anything? And I, I'm always like, oh, I'm a hack guitar player. Like I'm, I'm, I can get by. And the reason I always say that is because I've worked with some pretty amazing guitar, like guitar players. So to put myself in that realm, I'm like, does, I don't even come close. But if I really sit back and look at it and, and analyze it, it, it was it was huge it was monumental because um for a couple different reasons number 1 just having some musical knowledge and having uh, um being able to you know, I don't want to say like I don't have perfect pitch or anything like that, but being able to to just recognize like you know you know melodies and hear har- hear in your head harmonies and stuff like that that you learn from playing guitar and learn from maybe figuring out some of your favorite songs is great. But I think for me as an engineer, the thing that was very beneficial uh, was I, like I said I liked playing with tone, so you know, I would get EQ pedals and I would tweak them. And so like, I didn't realize, but when I was like 15, I was basically like doing ear training because I was taking a, you know, a boss graphic EQ pedal through a distorted Marshall. And I would, you know, turn up a frequency and hear how it would affect the amp. And then I was I was like, okay, well what, you know, I, I you know, later on would hear about like how, you know, some of, you know, like Dimebag would put a, a an EQ, a parametric EQ in the loop. So I go to rent a parametric EQ and be like for a weekend and be like, well, what does this do if I put it through, you know, the the effects loop of my guitar amp? And then it's like, oh shit, that does something completely different. But then you start sweeping, and I'd, like I was doing ear training without knowing it. So then when it came time to where I was like engineering and tracking and eventually mixing, like I'm already kind of familiar with frequencies and how how they work uh, together with other things. Um, so from an engineering standpoint, I think that was very beneficial from a production standpoint, just, you know, knowing how to play an instrument and knowing how to play, you know, music from a sense of like, okay, how does this work together? Or, you know, you know, how chords can work together harmonically or, um, how rhythms can affect certain things. Like that was the other thing is like the music I liked to play, um, I was I was never a lead guitar player. I, I like I never spent time learning solos. Um, I wish I did, but I didn't. Like I, I but I would sit there just practicing, you know, palm muting and and picking very evenly and playing chords clean and muting strings with my left hand between notes and like trying to be um, trying to make it sound like James Hetfield you know, who's an awesome rhythm player or Malcolm Young. Like I always, I always unplugged the, the one speaker that was Angus and I would like learn Malcolm Young's parts because I just thought, I'm like, man, they're so cool. And his tone was so good. And those are the parts that I learned. Um, that's what I gravitated towards. So it was more about kind of the foundation and less about the lead stuff, which I think helps from a production level. Cause I think a lot of the production stuff is just figuring out how the foundation can support everything else.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's a couple interesting things to take out of that. Like, you know, the idea of you learning like the ear training side of it with, with EQ on your guitar. It's like, that's that's definitely a thing. I think a lot of people don't even put together that when it comes to like mixing, it, it they're they're very similar. It's like you're you're shaping the sound on your amp to fit the sound of your song. So it's like you know mixing is basically doing that with multiple instruments, right? So you know it's, to think of it that way is definitely kind of a di- a different twist on it. Um, and also you know from the the playing side of it too. I, I like what you said about kind of just like figuring out the foundation of the songs and and. That's really what it is. It's like you're it's, you learned kind of by listening to things in context and figuring out how to piece things together, you know, your tone tone wise or, or performance part like parts wise, um, and I think that that's such an important thing because people, I, I find a lot of people tend to just focus on their own instrument and not really see the rest of it as like one cohesive unit. So, oh, know, I've done
1: plenty of that too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess every every tone junkie does that at some point. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but but no, you're right. You're
1: you're right because you know I would. You know, I would be at home tweaking stuff with my guitar and I'd get, you know, this awesome sound. And then, you know, I'd go to band practice and we'd have the drums and bass and, you know, vocals or whatever. And all of a sudden I'm like, man, I can't hear what I'm playing anymore. And realize, like, you know, I was chasing Injustice for All Tones and I scooped out too much mid-range. And now, like, I can't even hear, like, nobody can hear the riff I'm playing. So realizing, okay, I got to put some mid range back into it, or I got to change the mid range cut that I'm doing. If I still want to scoop sound, I got to move that to a different spot. Sounds fucking killer when I'm by myself and nothing else is happening. But soon as I go, you know, to, to, to play with the band, I've got to change that. So yeah, it was, and by all means, I'm like, I, I was completely unaware Of any of this at the time like i i didn't i didn't know what i was doing i was just playing around like i had no idea it was only later that like having conversations like this that i looked back and be like oh shit yeah like like, i was doing that when you know when i was playing around with guitar tones um and kind of putting two and two together like you know 15 years later like i had i wasn't none of this was on purpose this was all just you know playing around for
0: sure well hey i mean it it, it shows that you had that experience because when i listen to your mixes they sound massive and especially your guitar tones like uh, that's just one of your one of the qualities of your tracks that uh, i just really admire like you've always had this knack for getting amazing tones and and um what, one one thing that like really stands out to me with your mixes is stereo width like i don't know how <laughs> you do it but you make your tracks sound Gigantic and
1: just never listen in mono ever.
0: (laughs) Fair. Fair. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say like, I mean your your tracks, like you just have this amazing ability to get your, your song sounding like so massive, so wide. And I was wondering if you had any tips for, for getting that, uh, that massive wide sound. Like do you, is it just all panning or is it EQ? Is it, do you use stereo widening tools? Like what's your process for that kind of thing?
1: It's all of the above for me, mixing, and, and i don't i don't mean this as a compliment to myself but like i i i look at mixing like the way like jerry bruckheimer makes movies like i don't want you know if the car blows up i don't want it to look like what a car probably looks like when it blows up i want it to look like 50 times what it actually would be so so you know i i I like cartoon mixes, is kind of like how I describe it. I want CGI. I want cartoon like I want it to be the comic book version or the you know the the CGI version of real life. And so yeah, you know what? I'm not I'm not afraid to stick Widener's in several different spots in the mix and like i said don't listen in mono because you know once you start using too much of that it, it you know i've definitely gotten calls after doing mixes that everybody's like holy shit this sounds great and i'll get a call like right before mastering being like hey i was playing this for my buddy and we were playing it on like a on like a, a like a, a bluetooth speaker and i'm like which are most of those are mono even if they have two little spe- little woofers on the end most of those are mono and uh, and they're like, yeah, I couldn't hear the guitars, and I'm like, yeah, oops, like just don't listen on that. And they're like, but, <laughs> and I'm like, well, we can make the stereo version a little less cartoony, and you can get your mono back, or we can leave it where it is, and you you know, and, and there's tricks around helping that. I mean, I don't just completely sacrifice the mono, but um, so to answer your question, um, panning. Is obviously one thing, and you know, one of the tricks I will say, and it's different for every song. So, you know, kind of, you're gonna have to play around with this. Is dynamics are important across a mix, and I'm not talking about volume. Like I'm talking, dy- when I say dynamics, I'm talking about like loud versus quiet, bright versus dark, um, close versus far wide versus narrow like having dy- having th- those elements in a mix being dynamic is is very beneficial for instance things can only seem wide if there's something next to it that doesn't seem wide you know what i mean if everything's wide you're not going to get the sense of wide because it's just you get used to it your brain gets used to it so you know, from a production standpoint, or even if I'm not producing, if I'm mixing, like uh, sometimes what I'll do is I will narrow the panning until the section that I want or until the thing I want to sound really wide. So, you know, if, if I've got a, if I've got a pair of rhythm guitars and then a triple and a quad come up and I want that triple and quad to be panned out further, I'll just make sure before those come in, that the first and the second rhythm guitars are in a little bit. So while you're listening, you're like everything's hard left and hard right, but it's actually not. But your brain thinks it is and it's that's like that's your your that's your baseline.
0: So you might have those at like half half panned kind of thing. Yeah, probably a little
1: more than that. But let you know, let's say like, you know, 75 each way just for like a pro tools number you know and again it's all relative right 75 you know yes that gets you a spot but depending on what else you have going on 75 might not be wide you know if you've got the drums panned hard left and hard right and you've got some real like active room mics panned hard left and hard right you might those 75 guitars might seem narrow so again that's kind of everything's everything's um you got to have perspective and it's all in context but you know you know it's One of the tricks is, yeah, you know, if you want want something to pop out wide, you have to have other stuff in a little bit. So that way, when that thing comes in, it's like it pulls your ear out further. Um, So that's one trick. Um, Wideners are great. Um, And like I said, you can get into trouble with wideners really easily. So you got to, number one, spend some time finding the one that seems to fuck with everything else the least. Um one of the ones that I love is the um, the isotope ozone imager. Uh that's one that I really like. Um SPL, uh both the hardware and the soft and the plug-in versions of the SPL stuff has some cool wideners as well. Um And I use them on different things. Like I, you know, I might use them on the whole mix, but I also might just use them on a pair of rhythm guitars, or I might just use them on a keyboard. Um, Again, it's like if you bring everything out and everything is fake wide, like there's no point in doing it. Your brain gets so used to that, and it's static. It's not dynamic. Your brain gets used to that. You'd you'd be better off taking it off and just leaving everything panned hard left and hard right. And and that being as wide as it gets, Um, and then the other thing that I find I'd I'd say this is more common with um, I don't want to say beginners, but people maybe who aren't as you know as experienced is you know the your ear is going to interpret with because of differences in the audio, so you know if you. If everything is the exact same in the left and the right it's it's gonna be less apparent how wide they are and so you know you can you can deal with that a couple different ways like with let's say with doing guitars if you're doing if you're doing a a, um you know a, a pair of rhythm guitars if you've got a really great guitar player who can play really tight and you use the same guitar and the same amp and the same everything and you do a, a you know a, a track on the left and a track on the right and pan it wide that's going to it's going to sound really good but it's not going to sound as wide as if there's maybe something that's just a little different so whether it be like you know you know going to a different guitar um, going to a different amp, maybe you got the same amp, same guitar, but you change the balance of the mics if you've got multiple mics on it, or if you're using like a guitar amp simulator, change in the IR. Just changing something a little bit can draw it out that much more. And the other thing that I like to do with a really good guitar player that can help that as well is doing a triple and a quad, because you're just adding another element of differenti- you know differentiating material to the left and the right. So if you have a sloppy guitar player, adding a triple and a quad is worse. But if you got a good guitar player, it can actually enhance the width.
0: Love that. Yeah. So when you when you do triples and quads, because I have th- this is obviously a debate that I feel like a lot of engineers talk about, like, you know, how many guitar tracks is too much and, and where does that mud come in? Right. And to your point, like if you're a sloppy guitar player, then it's going to get sloppy very quick, no matter what. But uh, when you're adding your triples and quads, are you typically just. Using those to accent spots, like you talked about kind of having like maybe a chorus get a little bit wider and and kind of going 100% left and right. Is that when the triples and quads would come in? Or are you talking about having those like throughout all of your rhythm tracks?
1: That's when the five and the six and the seven and eight come in. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, again, so context related, right? There are songs where from top to bottom, the rhythm guitar is four tracks. And then there are there might be accents that come in, whether it be a part accent or if it's the same part, might be a different sound, um, something to accent or to give it a lift or just to give it a little bit of a scene change or a texture change. That might be another pair, you know, a five or six, maybe, you know, maybe those are panned in a little bit, maybe they're up the middle, like, um. It's so context related. Like, I mean, even with with some of the bands that I work with who are known for having just like really, really big, massive guitar tracks, there's no hard and steady rule. Sometimes it's two left and right, sometimes it's four, you know, sometimes it's three. Sometimes it's left and right with one up the middle. Um, there's no hard and steady rule. It's either riff dependent, like how does this play with the riff? It's uh production related like how does this play with the rest of you know the the production sometimes the other thing that i find is depending on how a song starts production wise like if it starts with a guitar riff and let's say we're we're you know working on program with program drums or a click track and you're like okay cool we did a left and a right and it sounds great and it sounds awesome and then you start building up the track and you're like man the guitar is just they sounded really big at first, but now we got everything else sounding really big too. I think we just need another layer. So, we'll just do another layer and add them on top. Sometimes you get to the end and you try that third and fourth layer and you're like, oh, it just it made it worse. Um, it's, a, it's just trial and error. And it's also just, you know, very context dependent. But uh, I guess the, the, the tip within that whole thing that I just said was don't have any like hard and steady rules. There shouldn't be a debate whether one's better than the other because one might be better on one song and one might be better on the other. Like there's there there is no right answer. So just do whatever works for whatever you're working on right at that point in time. And here's the other thing. There are parts where you're like we don't need to double. We don't need to double that. It's funny how and I like I said I love fucking Jerry Bruckheimer productions, right? I'm always the guy who's like, I'd rather have 10 guitars and then mute six of them than not have enough. And it became such a status quo of like, you'd play a guitar part. And before you were even done the guitar part, like the engineer was already like hitting the double, you know, getting another track ready to go. And you're like, but we we haven't even really heard how that worked. Like maybe that works perfectly. Maybe we don't need a double. Like it just became such common practice to just, oh, we need, you have to double that. Do we need to double that? Well, that's just what we do. And you're like, Okay, but like there are parts that you're like, no, no, that that sounds great as is or that tone works better on its own. Um, And the great thing is now it's so easy to try stuff and be able to be like, no, that didn't work. You know,
0: try it. I I love that, man. I I think that you just brought up such a good point there because. We kind of tend, a lot of people tend to do things instinctively, and it's just like, oh, I've just always done it this way, so I just continue to do it. And, and, and I'm
1: I'm guilty of that, too. I mean, I get into that. Everybody does.
0: Yeah. And I love that, you know, you you kind of basically just said, like, this, w- this whole conversation is like, how do you make your guitar, guitar track sound wide? And it kind of started at first, like, we have multiple layers of guitars, and there might be, like, five or six guitars. But then you also said, but it could sound good with two. And that could give you like the maximum width. And then you said, we can do it with one. So it's like, you know. Yeah, I mean,
1: what one's not going to give you a lot of
0: width. But, no, one uh, won't give you the width. But if it's a good tone, then it's a good tone.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I mean, you think of some of the, some of my, you know, favorite records, not necessarily from a production standpoint, but just like, you know, growing up, you know, um, you know, I mentioned AC/DC, Van Halen, Guns N' Roses, like, Those are some of my favorite bands. And those are bands that historically don't have doubles left and right. Like, There's either one guitar player playing one thing in one side and another guitar player playing another thing in another side. Or in the case of Van Halen, sometimes it's just one thing in one side and like the reverb on the other side. Like, and those are all great sounding records that have a vibe and have a, and those, you don't listen to those records and be like, ooh, this sounds mono. Um, It's a different thing. But there have been plenty of, I, I would, I would probably argue, most of the, let's say, uh, you know, most uh, uh, iconic rock records of all time don't have, you know, the, you know, pair of rhythms tracked perfectly left and right with the quad and a triple and like most of them don't have that. And we don't listen to any of those records and be like, you know, we we don't nobody listens to Back in Black and we're like, yeah, this doesn't sound good because because we didn't double all of the guitar parts nobody's ever said that
0: yeah well i think that in those in those cases it it really comes down to just the arrangement overall right it's like at the end of the day you just don't want your mixes to sound lopsided so if you have only one part going on in one speaker but then there's nothing on the other well then your ear is going to just gravitate to that one side so it's about kind of finding that balance of the parts so that even if you do have a single take of your uh, you know like Two guitars on panned hard left and right. As long as they're kind of complementing each other, then you're going to feel that width.
1: Hundred percent, and that goes back to when there's differences. Sometimes that stuff can feel wider. So even so, that's another trick that you know, not trick, but but that's like another thing you know that we've also gotten into um, in modern music production is you know, there's a lot of scenarios where if you're in a let's let's say a five piece band, the producer will have the best guitar player play everything, including the bass sometimes because they want the bass just to lock in with the guitars, right? And just low octave of it. And, um, when you do that, it's, it's got a very cool sound because everything's so locked. Um, but some, but again, going back to some of the most iconic records of all time, you've got different people playing on different sides of the spare, stereo field. So it's like, Even if they're playing the same part, they're going to play it different enough to where you're going to get some of that width just because there's things, there's uh, uh, differences happening in each speaker. So, you know, and and to completely contradict myself, like, you know, on the other hand, some of my favorite albums, you know, The Black Album or, um, you know, Dr. Feelgood or whatever, like those would sound funny if they didn't have those like super tight, wide left and right guitar things going on right you know like some of my favorite sounding records would sound it would sound odd if they didn't have that so again it's so context you know dependent that you know you're you can't you you really can't have a hard and steady rule on that and if you do you're you're leaving a lot on the table that's for sure
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we're our job is to make these songs sound incredible and to serve the song at all times. So, you know, constantly reevaluating how the mix is shaping up, even in the recording stage. Like, it's, it's all about that end result. So, you know, making sure everything works together. Love that. When it comes to adding that many, like you talked about having like sometimes five or six guitars, what's your approach to getting those stacks? Like, are you just doing, are you ever... Like, are you trying to? I know some people will try to have like a clean guitar stacked with like a dirtier guitar, like a super super dirty guitar, and like they'll kind of stack up these three different parts and blend those together. Do you kind of tend to take that approach more, or are you using kind of more of the same or similar tones? Uh, Like maybe all all six guitars are distorted. Like, what's your approach to to making those massive walls of guitar?
1: Yeah, I, I would say I, I kind of dig in on that a little bit more. It's less about kind of dirty, clean, you know, heavy versus not. Uh, more about what frequencies there are. And that's, again, kind of going back to when I would fuck with guitar tones. Um, I remember very distinctively, just kind of circling back a little bit. I remember very distinctively um, I bought... <laughs> This has become a, like a hot button conversation. I bought a, a Boss Metal Zone uh, guitar pedal and it had a parametric EQ on it, uh, the mid range. The mid range had like a, a sweepable frequency and boost. It wasn't fully parametric, but and I remember going, playing with it, and I remember getting a tone that I really liked where I was boosting mid range. And then I got a really good tone that I liked where I was cutting mid-range, but a different frequency. So it was either like boosting one frequency or cutting a different frequency. And I would always flip-flop, like for the entire time that I used this pedal as like my distortion sound, like one day I'd be like, oh man, this sounds really good. And then the next day I'd be like, oh man, one day, oh, this sounds really good, whatever. And that's kind of the way that I treat layering guitars is like, if I'm going to do a, a, quad, a triple and a quad... I try to get, I don't want to say the opposite sound, but I'll try to get a sound that complements the other one. So if, if it's already a scooped, kind of big, distorted scooped sound, well, then I'll get something that's maybe got a little more mid-range definition for the for the stack. If, if the main sound is something that's already got mid-range, well, then maybe what I'll do is I'll use the other one to create some size and just some, some thickness, and I'll scoop it out. And so it's about it's about finding stuff that complements. Sometimes the way to do that, again, the 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 scapegoat on this whole thing is called context, right? Sometimes the way to do that is to make it cleaner. Like if, and that's the other thing, have intent, you know, have a purpose. So if I'm going to do a triple and a quad, it's not going to be for no reason. There's a reason I'm doing it. So what is the reason? You know, is the reason because the the you know the the single and the double doesn't have enough you know excitement is it too tight to where i'm not getting the width i want some more stuff kind of you know making it different to give it a little bit more you know discrepancy between the left and the right is it it's a great tone but it's lacking a little definition like again if you're going to do it know why you're doing it and that should direct you to what to do next so if you're like hey this is great i love this this rhythm guitar sound we got but i'm i'm losing some of the articulation once the drums kind of get loud as well or once the vocal comes in we're starting to lose some articulation okay well you you need something that's a little you're gonna need an additional sound that's maybe a little more defined maybe it's got a little more mid-range but at the mid-range is in a different frequency than the vocal or the snare drum um and how and that's going to tell you what what you need to do. You're going to be like, okay, let's do a triple and a quad. Let's maybe, let's back down the gain. Let's make it, instead of it being scooped, let's make it, you know, a little more defined with some more mid range. Let's use a guitar that's maybe not as hot or a guitar that's maybe a little, um, doesn't have as much bottom end. So that way it's just a cleaner sound from the bottom end standpoint or, or that too, roll off all the bottom end. Like just taking a sound and rolling off all the bottom end can make a huge difference in terms of clarity and articulation. So sometimes it's the same setup and we're just like, OK, let's roll off all the bottom end, either by using a guitar that has a pickup with, with less bottom end or graphic EQ or doing it on the mic preamp. Like there's so many different ways you can do it or in a plug in after the fact. So knowing why you're doing it will kind of point you into the direction of what to do next. If that if that makes any sense.
0: man, I, I love that answer. It's great because it, it does really put into context like how to how to decide what kind of setup you're going to go with. I'm curious to know though like because I guess a lot of people would listen to this and think, well, why not just use EQ after the fact? you know so like how, wh- how do you go about making those decisions of like oh I can just EQ this later versus like no, I need a different tone altogether to, to complement this existing track.
1: It's hard to explain. It's easier to show somebody and have with examples, but I find, especially with distorted guitars, you get a, like a harmonic buildup and that, and, you know, people talk about like low end building up. Like you're like, if everything you have just has lots of low end and the low end just starts building up and is very undefined. I get the same thing. Like my ears hear the same thing with, um, distortion and, you know, the, t- a, the sound of a distorted guitar is a lot of, harmonic overtones and and when it's the same amp and the same guitar and the same everything same cabinet same mic same eq same everything all of those harmonic overtones just start building up on top of each other and sometimes just changing one thing aside from eq at the end sometimes changing one thing kind of ahead of time guitar pickup um uh, uh head channel on the head cabinet mic on the cabinet um depending on how hard you're driving any uh, a mic preamp sometimes changing a mic preamp can even do it too i mean if you're if you're not driving the mic preamp much you know switching out mic preamps is probably not gonna make a huge difference for you but um so again for me i don't mind trying it like if we're like hey we need a triple and a quad and i'm just i'm kind of like yeah you know what i think we need the same sound like i like the way that this is sounding I just I want it to be a little wider and there's nothing else is bothering me about it. We just want it wider and bigger. Leave the same sound. And then in mixing, most of the time I'll end up EQing it just a little bit different. So that way you're not getting as much buildup. But you'll hear pretty quickly if you're like, yeah, it's not solving my problem. And you might EQ it a little bit and you're like, it's still not solving my problem. And and or you're hearing the things that you're that are bugging you build up. And you're like, I'm getting more sh- and not the definition. Or I'm getting more v- and not the definition. And you might try to EQ it and it doesn't work. That's when you like go to some something else. And I think ultimately that's one of those things where the more you do it, the more experienced you get. And there are certain sounds and certain parts that I know right out of the gate, I got to go to a different amp. I got to go to a different guitar. I'm not going to be able to fix this with EQ. And it's um, it's usually the more harmonically complex the part is or the sound is, the more I need to change more stuff. So I'll give you an example. If I'm doing a song and it's a, um, I'm trying to think of a song like something with a single note, single note guitar riff, you know. Um, something with a single note that's maybe not super fast, you know, whatever, and you're just playing... Whatever. Whatever the first thing comes in my head. Um, That I could probably layer up with the same sound six times and it would just keep getting better and better and better until it doesn't. And then you're like, cool, that sounds great. We don't need to change a bunch of stuff. If you're playing like chords with thirds and, and, you know... everything's ringing out and there's just so much harmonic content being generated you know or even if it's you know a couple big chords with a riff in between and then a couple big chords with a riff in between built just using the same thing and just layering that on top and on top and on top that's going to be counterproductive real fast so it's it's a little bit of trial and error and figuring out like what's gonna work and what's not gonna work and having a little bit of foresight for that. and that comes with experience um just being being like, hey, the last eight times I tried to do that, it didn't work. I don't need to try it a ninth time. It's not gonna work. Let's just go to something else. Let's head that problem off and hopefully it doesn't take you eight times to figure it out. It might only take you like four or five, but you know,
0: yeah, I, man, I, I love that answer like that was such a clear. Answer that I think anyone who's listening to this it'll just click. it makes a lot of sense. um I do want to go back a sec because earlier you were talking about using these stereo widening tools and you kind of mentioned like don't listen to it in mono and that, that <laughs> that's something that I get asked a lot like people say like you know, don't we need mono? shouldn't we be like making our mixes sound really good in mono and like you know when I when my mixes are pan hard left and right and I hit that mono button everything disappears, what's your take on that like what's what's the approach to take there?
1: Ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. It, it's <laughs> yeah. I. I don't want to. I, I don't want to be so like you know brash and be like I kind of don't care because I do care. I, I I do care how it sounds. I do. I do know there's literally an infinite amount of listening environments out there. Um, I mean, literally, if you've got a stereo system, you know, with the same set of speakers that don't move, that stereo system's going to sound infinitely different depending on like what where you are in that room. So it's like my, I guess my philosophy is, I kind of don't want. And this is, I mean, this is it opens up a big can of worms. I kind of don't want to accommodate the lowest, like. Common denominator, if that makes any sense. I don't want to aim for that. And I know mixers and I know producers who do. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. Um, I just, I sleep better at night knowing that my mix sounded as good as it can coming out of the speakers that I mixed it on. And Obviously, I take into account how that's going to translate. That's a huge part of what I do. But I also try to to get my monitoring system set up so that way that's not like an afterthought. It's, it's happening at the same time. Um, I can't control if somebody you know i can't control if somebody you know if one of their speakers on their you know on their home stereo is broken or if they're listening in the other room with the door half closed and oh it doesn't sound that good well yeah you were in your closet getting dressed and your stereos in your living room it's like well i can't control that and i know that's a, i know that's a far fetch from somebody listening on like a you know a beats uh, you know or a, a, a pill or something yeah but I kind of, I don't, I don't prioritize it. I'm aware of it and I don't prioritize it unless a client calls me and is like, yeah, you know what? We, I, I, I don't want that. I think ultimately most people would, uh, at least in my experience, most of my clients want it to sound as good as it can sound in kind of under regular circumstances than, you know, well, let's sacrifice that a little bit to make it sound a little better on, you know, a little shitty mono Bluetooth speaker. Um, so yeah, it's one of those things. I'm really interested to see. I mean, I've been playing around with Atmos, you know, for a little bit, and I'm interested to see. You know, one of my big questions on that is like, well, how does this translate? Like, how do, how is this going to translate to other non fifteen plus speaker setups? Like, how how is this how is this going to work? Um, and I mean, that's, I love mixing an Atmos, but it's like, that's another can of worms where I'm like, okay, so, so when we're mixing an Atmos, are we going to start making decisions based off the guy who's got a sound bar? I'm like, like at some point you got to kind of just to, to make your priority, whatever you're going to make it. Um, and so, yeah, I don't. I don't give it a ton of credence, you know, just because it's like not what doesn't kind of fall in line with what I'm trying to do.
0: It's true. There's so many different mediums that people could be listening on. So, you know, to, to try to please everyone is a very difficult and challenging task. And yeah, ultimately, you know, you're right. The regular listening environment is going to be a stereo setup. So might as well shoot for that cuz who who knows maybe even Atmos won't survive you know like, like-
1: uh, who knows i'm i'm very interested but i mean these days pretty much everybody i know has got a set of earbuds and again talking about like you know lowest common denominator yeah i got i i do check apple earbuds to make sure mixes sound translate well with those um everybody's got a of that or a pair of pair of some sort of headphones everybody's got you know even I mean, even the most of the the smartphones now do have stereo speakers. Um, I'm not just talking about two speakers, but talking about a discrete left and right channel. Because l- most of those Bluetooth speakers are, don't have a a left and a right channel. It's just it's mono. Um, most people have cars that they're listening to. Most people have a TV with two. Like it's the mono scenario to me is such is just so minor and minute. Um and let's be honest, at the end of the day, the type of music that I make, as much as the guitars are exciting, and as much as you know, like everything is, you know, production-wise, is a big chunk of it, the vocal's still coming across, the song's still coming across. There's always something that's getting you know the root note out the center speaker. There's always the vocals always gonna be coming out the center. So at the end of the day, you know, if somebody's listening on one of those and they're like, yeah, the guitars don't sound, I, the guitars kind of disappear. And I'm like, yeah, you know what song it is, right? You, you'll still like the song and you, you're still hearing all the notes, you know, maybe not the guitars as clear as you want. Or maybe that riff's not speaking the way it is. You're still hearing the kick drum and the ba- and the snare drum for the beat. You're still still hearing the vocal for the melody. You're still hearing the root note of the bass and maybe a, a center guitar or whatever else. Like, it's not like the, the speaker no longer works.
0: Yeah. And I'm at the end of the day, something. people are singing the lyrics. They're not singing the guitar parts or that kind of thing. Right?
1: <laughs> well, sometimes they're singing the guitar parts. Yeah. But yeah, it's, 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 again, it's it's one of those scenarios where I just, I can't, I can't. At some point, I draw the line and I, maybe my line's a little further down the line than most people's, but so.
0: Oh, another thing I wanted to ask you about is that another aspect of your mixes that I, I've always really loved is the sound of your snare tones. And especially on like, the heavier Nickelback stuff, like that snare, just sounds massive. Like, it, I, I don't know how to describe. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it other than that. Like, you know, you just have this way of getting these like gigantic sounds that are are fat but not flubby sounding, or like super bloated. You know, like, and I, I'm curious to pick your brain about, you know, what's your secret for getting a massive snare tone?
1: Um. Samples. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's not such a secret, but um, I've I've never had a problem. Like I've never had a problem uh, uh, philosophically using samples. I'm I'm not like going going back to the the, the Jerry Bruckheimer analogy. Like I'm I'm not a, like I'm not precious. Being like oh well, it doesn't sound real, and I'm like I don't care. Like does it sound good? Does it sound exciting? Does it does it you know do what it's supposed to do? Yes. Fine. I don't care how we got it. I don't care if it sounds real or not. I like get just again in context. You know, if you're doing a you know you know a soft ballad with you know brush that's got like you know, a, you know or a blastics part or whatever, you don't want to use a big <laughs> shotgun Machine sounding example. Yeah, exactly. But um, for the most part, in the heavy stuff, uh, <laughs> context, context, context. Um, it's so. Secrets to getting a big snare drum. It. Well, let's dig into the sample thing because when people hear me say samples, they're like, oh, we'll just start piling on samples. You got to be able to, like, why are you using a sample in the first place? Okay, well, if the snare drum sounded the way that I wanted it to sound, I wouldn't have to use a, a, a sample. There's inherent problems with getting a live snare drum to sound the way that I want it in the context of some of those big heavy mixes, whether that be leakage, whether that be microphone placement, because the drummer doesn't have enough room for you to get a microphone. Like, like where we put a microphone on a snare drum is actually not that great of a spot. Like if we were, you know, I've done sample libraries and if you just have a snare drum in the middle of the room and you can put a mic anywhere on it, it's not going to end up being where it is on 95% of the, of the drum recordings because you're going to have it in a different spot. Like snare drums sound great with mics, not like just right up on the head at some weird angles jammed between a hi-hat and a tom and a splash cymbal and a crash right at like, that's not the, op- at least for me, that, that's not the optimal placement but that's what you have to deal with. You've got hi-hats going on. You've got bleed going on. You've got all this stuff happening, right? Um, you've got the dynamics of a drummer. A lot of drummers, I mean, some of the best drummers, the reason why they're good isn't because they can play complicated parts. It's because every time they hit the drum, it sounds the same. You know, That's what makes them a better drummer than the guy next door is they can control the sound of their drums. So it's like, I've, I've worked with some amazing drummers and You know, people are like, oh, could they play anything? And I'm like, no, they could play like Boots and Cats and Boots and Cats. And it sounded fucking perfect. Every hit just sounded the same. And it sounded great. And everything was singing. That's, to me, what makes a great drummer. You know, at least part of what makes a great drummer. More so than how complicated of a part they can play. And so if somebody sends me a track or if I'm recording drums... Yeah, I'm going to try to get the live snare drum sounding as good as it can and and sounding the way that I hear it in my head that and and what I hear in my head is usually you know within context of the production. So when I like if you know if, if I'm producing a track and we're you know we got a guitar riff going and you know um you know we're tracking drums on a you know kind of bed tracks I have a sound in my head that I want to hear and I don't know if that's just you know my taste or if it's instinct or if it's because I'm inspired by stuff that I've heard before, whatever it is, a sound pops into my head. And so then it's about making that happen. And if it means that the snare drum's got a ton of low end and a ton of high end, and I can't get that from the live snare for various reasons, then I'll just go to a sample. But I'm not picking samples, again, talking about intent, I listen to the snare drum and I say, well, what do I need? Okay, well, I need more top end. Well, if I turn the EQ on the top end of the live snare, I start hearing the hi-hats too much, or it's not its its not giving me the right top end. It's like the snare doesn't have the top end that we need. Okay, so I'll turn up the bottom mic. Maybe that will give me more of the rattle. Okay, cool, but now I'm getting too much rattle and not enough just air. It's like like the samples are solving problems, just in my experience, they solve the problems way better than any tool that I can put on a live snare drum. So, um, I go to it very fast. I go to it very quickly. Like, you know, even, even when I'm comping drums, like I'll be comping the the second we're done a drum take, I'll have, I'll be triggering samples while I'm comping. Why not? Like, why not sound, make it sound that right, right away from the minute the drummer comes back in the room, he's, he's, Depending on what we're doing, he might be hearing samples right away. And um, just to make it sound closer to what we want it to be, uh, and we'll get it as far as we can with the live mics, but um, the samples are there to solve problems. So kind of going back to that, you know, if if you want a specific kind of crack that you're just not getting, maybe the drummer can't play it. Maybe he doesn't hit the drum hard enough. Maybe he doesn't hit it the right way. Well, you know what? I've got a sample that does exactly what I want it to do. And I've got billions of samples. I've got too many samples. I, I haven't even like I don't even know where to find them anymore. But I have I have my favorites. And and the other thing is with when you're working with samples, a mistake that I see a lot of people make is they just start, they're like, oh, I like that one. I like that one. I like that one. I like that one. Let's have them all firing together at the same time. Going back to the guitar tone, you know, conversation. Figure out what your problem is and pick the solution based that's that's gonna fix the problem. Don't just keep on layering like oh we don't have enough definition well i'm going to use the same sound that doesn't have enough definition well that's not going to solve the problem like get something that's got more definition that will help solve the problem so again i do the same thing with samples i usually have a sample that takes care of like you know let's let's say a a snare drum i've got a sample ultimately that's got like the tone i've got a sample that's got the crack i've got a sample that's got like the like air I've got a sample that's got low end like 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 punchy low end. I've got like the
0: ooh
1: ooh sample. Like it's almost like you hear it and you're like, "Is that a tom mixed with a white noise?" Like like I've like they're not all doing the same thing. And then you can blend them to figure out like to get the sound that's in your head. Be like, "Oh, okay, I've got the Okay, but now it doesn't now it sounds like a Simmons drum machine. I need some more crack to make it sound like a real snare drum. Maybe you mix a real snare drum in you're like, that solved it. now I need some more air. So then you turn up the one that's got the air. Um, you know it's, again talk about width using room samples. Sometimes, you know what, believe it or not, there, there, there was a pro, uh, a project they did um, a couple years ago. Where while we were tracking it, I was like really like the drummer was great. He had great equipment. We had a drum tech that was just tuning everything great. And I'm like, fuck, this snare drum is sounding awesome. Like this might be the first time in my life I'm not going to use a sample. And and we were kind of it became a little bit of a joke. Being like, Oh, baseford said he's not going to use the sample. Oh, let's see if he can do it, whatever. And it became kind of a little bit of a joke. And by the end of it, the only thing that we we did use the sample, but we just used it for we just used a room sample. Because the the in context of the kit, the real snare drum was giving us everything we needed, except for the big wide room thing, and so I use a snare. I just use a room sample.
0: Man, I, I love that answer. That, like you're so articulate with your with your thought process. I love it.
1: It's all about you know if there's if there's kind of like an underlying lesson that I can that I try to kind of give to people who are who are learning how to do this or doing the doing it on their own is um there's a lot of there's a lot of um there's a lot of power in having uh, intent you know I find a lot of what we do especially with so much at our fingertips uh, it's very easy to get just lost in the weeds of like I've got 50 billion plugins, I've got a thousand and Ten thousand snare drum samples and you know i've got you know 50 guitar amp simulators that you know are the best amps in the world like that you know you got you everybody has everything so it's very easy to get lost like let let your intent drive the decision making so don't just like be like oh i want to use this guitar amp okay well like ask yourself before you pick a guitar amp like What's the problem, or what do you what why why are you doing something, or you know why why are you going towards this amp, or what's the problem that you need to solve, and let that point you in the direction of the solution. Um, and it's like that with just about everything, like especially when it comes to sound, because sound like mixing and recording, it's a bunch of problem solving. It's making you know how do you fit a hundred pounds of shit into a ten pound bag, and like that's a lot of problem solving that's a lot of tetris and trying to piece it all together so let the problem or what you're trying to do give you some intent to fix it with all the tools that you have at your your fingertips don't just you know just be like oh i like that one or i like that's my favorite or that's that where so and so used that or you know so and so on you know this podcast told me to do that you know like like it gives i mean it's good it's good to give you hints and it's good to give you insight but know why you're doing it and that will help solve the problem a lot better
0: absolutely so you absolutely. know if
1: you don't need 10 samples don't use 10 samples if you have about one sample that solves all your problems you're done and if you're snare, if, and if your snare drum doesn't have any problems if you're like fuck that sounds good i'm getting everything i need Then you don't need a sample
0: love it love it man I, man, I could talk your ear off about this stuff for hours because, like, I, I just love the way you think and 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 just how how detailed you are with your answers. It's amazing. Um, unfortunately, I do have another podcast interview that I'm gonna do shortly, but but I I have to ask you. I know that you recently just put out a brand new plugin, and I I have to ask about this. Obviously, the, uh, you put out a plugin with ML Sabla, Sound Labs called the CB4, yep. and it's yep. a guitar sim. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it and why you decided to make a plugin?
1: Yep, absolutely. So. Um I, I've I've came across ML Sound Lab uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so I've been in I've been using guitar amp simulators for years, like since I was you know tweaking with Tone when I was a teenager, and some of the really kind of beginning stages of guitar amp simulators were in a hardware form were out. So I've been a, I've been a big proponent of that. Um, I do like. You know, live guitar, real guitar amps as well, but it's just all tools to me. And if, it, you know, again, what works for for whatever you're going to do. But anyways, one of my favorite uh, guitar amps, like kind of my desert island guitar amp, is uh, an amp called a Diesel VH4. And um, um, I was... I've probably used that amp more on any, just about any any other amp that that I've used in the studio and it's got four great channels that you can use for a bunch of different stuff and and it's a big expensive heavy guitar amp that you know, not everybody has one I've gone to sessions where you know we don't have access to one I don't want to lug mine with me um there's just a variety of things and there there were already some amp sims of it out there but it didn't it didn't do what I wanted it to do, and I've got I've got just about every amp sim there is available. But for whatever reason, like when I want that sound, I I didn't really have it. I was always having to use a different simulation that was a little bit different or a different amp model within a different box and whatever. So um, when I started using the ML Sound Lab stuff, um, they were making IRS. Uh, guitar amps, IRs, and I had reached out to them. Um, Miko's the guy over there, and said, "Hey, you know what? I would would you be able to? Would you be interested in doing some some uh, um, some IR libraries together?" And he's and he just started doing amp sims, and he's like, he's like, you know what? I would. He's like, yeah, absolutely. But he's like, have you tried some of my amp sims? He goes like, I, I would, I would love to to talk to you a little bit about that. And so we started kind of coming up with some ideas, and he was like, "What? What don't you have? That? Like, what do you feel is missing?" And I said, "Well, believe it or not, like my favorite guitar amp, like my Desert Island, like studio amp. There's a bunch of sims out there, but none of them do what I wanted to want it. None of it sounds like my amp, or the other three diesels that I use often that, at other studios. Like they just, it doesn't sound the same." So we decided to do that. And I mean, we, he probably got really uh, annoyed with me, but we basically, we didn't stop until that thing sounded indistinguishable from my own uh, VH4. And um, part of why I wanted to do it selfishly was so that I always had that and I didn't have to, you know, f- I didn't have to have a wall of amps. I didn't have to have a studio to mic up the cab. I didn't have to have mics and mic pre. I didn't have, like, I could literally, I'm like, I could take this with me anywhere. I can have it on any rig. Every one of my clients can have it on their system. So I don't need to bring anything. I don't need, like, nothing. It's like, we've got that sound at all times. And, you know, the 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 added benefit was being able to give other people access to such an amazing sounding uh a guitar amp simulator at a pretty like reasonable price considering you know the amps like four thousand dollars and that's just the amp head you still have to have a cabinet you still have to have a room to mic it you have to like i mean like if you were to build the chain the way that i'm used to using i mean it's probably like you know seven eight or nine thousand dollars and having the space and the soundproof isolation to do it and for you know Less than a hundred bucks, you can basically have that on your computer. It was was pretty cool to me. So, you know, it was it was somebody who it was a company that was willing to do a non like no compromise. This thing doesn't come out until you are absolutely happy. And we're gonna do it, we're gonna make it sound exactly the way that you are used to hearing that sound. And um, we've had a lot of great feedback, and I've been using it on sessions ever since it came out, and everybody's blown away. So yeah, we've got we've got more, we've got a couple other a couple other amps that we're working on as well. So there'll be more coming down the down, coming down the pipeline soon. But yeah, it was an awesome project, and I'm just so happy to actually like have that with me, you know, on my laptop at every studio and and uh and other people can enjoy it as well. So
0: that's amazing. Yeah, I, I was messing around with it earlier this week and it's it's incredible, man. It's it's such a good amp sam. And like what I love about it is that It has such a diverse range of sound out of it. It has everything from the cleanest of cleans to like the dirtiest of dirt and, you know, everything in between. So it's, you know, I can see why it would be your Desert Island amp because it it covers all the bases.
1: Yeah. I mean, that amp is kind of known for the third channel, like channel three. Like you've like, there was a certain time, there's probably like a 10 year period of rock music where like you turn on the radio, you turn on K-Rock and it's like, that's diesel channel three. Like, that's just, that's what it is, what like a certain group of guys were producers were just using. And it was like, that's the thing. And it's, that's what it's known for. And one of the things, it's interesting, like, one of the challenges for me once it was done and getting it out was for people, I'm like, just, yeah, we know, we know channel three is good. Just don't use channel three for a while. Like, play with the other stuff. Cause I think people, people just are like, oh, that's, d- vh4 channel 3 just go to channel 3 i mean i use channel 2 all the time all the time channel 4 is awesome too but and channel 1's the clean channel i mean it literally is each one of those channels you could make an amp and sell that amp with just that one channel, and somebody <laughs> so there true. would be a lot of people that would be like, "Oh man!" Like if channel two on the diesel was its own amp under a different name, under a different thing, people would be like, "Oh dude, that's the best amp for like you know just edge of breakup, clean but slightly distorted, and then you can kind of go into like people would go apeshit over channel two if it wasn't dwarfed by channel three. So, you know, I I really I've been I've been trying to like encourage people. I'm like, don't like this is not this is a forge ch- this is a legit four channel amp like those other channels aren't there just to give you options like that are yeah just kind of fill in the blanks like no the each one stands on its own it's you know, you can tell how much I love the amp. Just I, I, I literally do. Like it's, it's. You're out of your seat. Desert.
0: You're just excited about it. Man. I am. It's my Desert Island app,
1: <laughs> and I'm pumped up. Like I can have it anytime I want and on any system I want. It's pretty awesome.
0: It's incredible, so. man. Like I, I, I definitely want to play around with it a lot more. But uh, yeah, it's it sounds great, man. So congrats on putting that out there because oh, I, th- you, I think you. a lot of people are going to pick up on it, and yeah, it's going to become. It's gonna become that popular plugin that everyone needs. So. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to to do this today. Um, yeah, man, you're you, just all the insight that you gave us today was was incredible. And and like, I love just the way you describe your process. It's like it's it's very clear. And and the topic of intent has come up numerous times here, and it's very clear that intent is how you always think about things. So um so yeah, thank you again for 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 being on this and, and providing so much awesome insight. If people want to learn more about you or, or follow you online, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Uh, well, if they, they can go to my website if they want to get in contact with me directly, uh, chrisbaceford.com. Um, I'm on kind of all the socials, Chris on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Instagram's probably what I'm on the most. So you can, you can find me on there, DM me. Um, and yeah, just uh, that's probably the best way to do it—either my website or uh, or Instagram.
0: Awesome. And lastly, are there any cool projects that you're working on right now that you can talk about?
1: I just finished finished mixing uh, the new Daughtry album, which is unbelievable, unbelievable—a really, really, really great, great album. I'm really excited about that about that coming out. I think a lot of people are going to dig it. It's got some you know it's got some heavier stuff than i think people are used to hearing from him and really just a, just an overall awesome album so i think that's probably one that uh that's done going to be coming out probably around the time that this does and then uh yeah we've started uh started kind of getting uh getting the ball rolling on uh, on another on some new nickelback material as well so we've got that coming as well amazing so, awesome yeah, man we're well, try- looking
0: forward to hearing them like yeah, absolutely. Well, again, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to do this, and uh, keep up the great work, man. You're crushing it.
1: Thanks, I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike.
0: So that was my interview with Chris Baysford, and that was awesome. I love the way he thinks. He's just so articulate with his process, and you know the the topic of doing things with intent came up numerous times and it's very clear that that is exactly how he approaches everything just you could tell by his answers that he he really does think about every situation and have reason behind every move that he makes so yeah, i love all the detail that he went into about creating wide mixes and how he goes about doing that and also on the topic of samples just like his approach for doing that as well i think there's a lot of great lessons to take out of this episode so chris if you're listening to this thanks again for being on the podcast man this was a lot of fun. And uh, I'm sure the listeners got a lot out of this too. And for you, the listener, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, definitely make sure to subscribe to it so that you're up to date on all of the new episodes as they're released. And definitely make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com. When you go to that website, there are a bunch of great resources. There's blogs, podcasts, books, courses, a whole bunch of great stuff to help you get very clear on the various tools and processes behind recording and mixing. But one resource that I would highly recommend you check out is called The Mixing Mindset. That is a Amazon number one bestselling book that I put out a couple of years ago. And inside that book, I walk you through my entire step-by-step process for creating pro sounding mixes. So definitely make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode, guys. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. And I really look forward to talking to you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.